Hello, Rachel. Hi, Dwayne. Hello, Tyler. Hello, Dwayne. Are we ready to talk about prison and re-entry? Always. Let's roll. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today is July 13th, 2020, and the top priority is criminal justice reform, specifically the prison and reentry aspect of the criminal justice process. It was recorded on June 11th, 2020. In the conversation that follows, you'll hear us use terms like community and vision, You'll hear us talk about mutually reinforcing principles. And before we get into the interview, let's talk about what those mean. Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the Grassroots Leadership Academy are part of the Stand Together community. A link to the Stand Together website is included in the show notes. Each episode, we focus heavily on how our vision guides our decisions in the different priority initiatives we decide to impact. The vision is very ambitious. We break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. And this moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. This vision is built on four mutually reinforcing principles, which we'll also discuss. The principles are equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, and self-actualization. You can find the vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles also in the show notes. Now, let's talk about prison and reentry. Here's who's going to help us understand what we believe good looks like. I am Rachel Reese. I'm a program officer at Stand Together. Uh, and I'm Tyler Kiki. I'm a criminal justice policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity. So we've walked through pretty much the entire the entirety of the criminal justice process. And now we find ourselves talking about prison and re-entry. So when we look at the, the community vision, what does good look like when we start talking about prison? And, and tell me a little bit about the difference between prison and re-entry. Are they the same thing or are they two different components of the same end of the system? Sure. We're going to start at the, the really high level, our vision. Um, but at a high level, what we're hoping to achieve is just that those with a record can rejoin our communities with dignity, a lower level of recidivism, and the ability to get a job, housing, and education. Um, the prison system obviously serves a super vital function in keeping communities safe and ensuring that violent offenders are punished. Uh, but unfor unfortunately, a lot of people are sentenced in the system for far too long and for things that are disproportionate to the crime committed. So to give you a little sense of, of what that actually looks like, we have about 2.2 million people currently incarcerated, about 1.5 million of which are in state and federal prisons. And over half of those are actually there for violent offenses. So that's a huge number of people that are caught in our system for nonviolent, low-level or victimless crimes. Um, we also recognize the potential of all people once they're in the system to transform their lives and contribute positively to society. And uh, once in the system, the system should actually ensure that those individuals are able to be rehabilitated and not just punished and provide true opportunities for second chances. A lot of people 
think this population should just sort of be locked up behind bars and throw away the key. But the fact of the matter is that 5% of state prisoners are going to return to our communities. Uh, so that's somewhere between 600 and 700,000 people a year, not including the millions of people released to jails. And these individuals face huge barriers to reentry. So estimated 44,000 collateral consequences, things like occupational licensing restrictions to get employment, uh, an inability to obtain driver's licenses, uh, losing your right to vote, uh, and all of these barriers that are sort of prohibiting people's chances at, at a second chance basically mean that about half of the people coming out of prison are, are not going to be employed within a year post-release, and two-thirds of the people released are actually going to be rearrested within three years of being released, uh, largely for technical violations, not new crimes. So essentially the system is built such that too many people end up in the system, and once there, it almost guarantees that people are more likely to fail and return to the system than actually be successful and given a second chance. Tyler, anything I missed? Yeah, I'll just, uh, that's just a really good overview. I'll just add that um, these, these technical violations that Rachel are talking about, which is when you uh, violate a condition of your probation parole, probation is normally something that you might get instead of a, a jail or prison term, but sometimes it can be a reentry issue too when it's added uh, after a incarceration period or parole. Uh, which, you know, again, after you've been in prison, oftentimes these will come with a series of conditions you have to comply with, which might include a curfew. It might include alcohol or drug tests. It might include, you know, staying in the same county, having X amount of contacts with your probation or parole officer per month. Um, all these things that, while well intended to, you know, try and keep track of folks and make sure they don't um, recidivate, uh, commit a new crime, and are successful in their reentry. Um, oftentimes, we enforce the failure to meet those, even if just by accident, really harshly. So maybe you simply forgot to call up your officer. Some places, that technical violation, in other words, not a new crime that you've committed, but just a condition that you failed to meet, can land you back in jail or prison. And it's actually, I think, 45% of our new prison admissions nationwide are people who have already served their original time who just failed to meet one of these uh, technical violations. And so without kind of a more, with a, a sort of blunt instrument approach to enforcing these, that really drives up that prison population, costs taxpayers, and, you know, ruins these people's chances at a successful reentry by maybe costing them a job that they've worked hard to be able to start and, you know, separates them from their uh, family and other social ties that they've got that helping them uh, reenter the community. So what do you say to someone who hears what you have to say about prisons and they're taking a very tough on crime approach saying, look, prison's not supposed to be a summer camp. They're not supposed to go there to learn basket weaving. They're going there because they hurt someone and it's, it's not supposed to be fun. It sounds like you want to well, take it soft on crime. In terms of the, the tough on crime versus uh, soft on crime question, you know, I think the, the statistic that we always keep coming back to is the fact that 95% of people in state prisons are going to eventually return to society. And, you know, we, of course, aren't saying that people shouldn't be held accountable for committing crimes, but that um, someone doing their time and paying their debt to society 
once that debt is paid, it is in our best interests for them to succeed uh, when they return to their communities and become uh, our neighbors. You know, we 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 want um, people to be able to you know flourish as individuals and uh, surmount barriers to reaching their full potential. And then you know, just more practically from a public safety perspective, you know, we're all better off uh, if people are uh, you know being productive not committing new crimes so it's both the the moral right thing to do and just the practical thing to do to have both a a mindset of holding people accountable but also adequately focus on rehabilitating them yeah and i I would also add that you know i keep coming back to statistic about half of the people that are currently incarcerated in state prisons are there for nonviolent offenses. So I think we have this men- this wrong mentality that all the people that are in prison right now are there because they've actually harmed somebody else. But there's a lot of people that are locked up right now for victimless crimes. or even crimes that they didn't know were crimes that they were perpetrating. I know you've already done a segment on overcriminalization and that aspect of um, our criminal justice strategy, but uh, there's so many laws on the books that I forget the exact statistic, but the average American commits, what, three felonies a day uh, unintentionally. So there's there's a huge number of people that are accidentally wrapped up in the system without even knowing that they had committed a crime. And we want those people not to come out of the prison as hardened criminals, but as people that are actually set up to reintegrate back into their communities. When you start, you know, and, and even ahead, if, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tyler. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the only thing I was going to add, because I think that's a, that's a great point about folks convicted of, of stuff they may not have realize or they might not be uh have committed violent offenses but you know also even for people who have committed violent offenses you know that's uh i think i i mentioned this guy on an earlier podcast but this uh this uh man who, who used to be in prison and has a youtube channel now named uh, larry lott and he always says i don't believe in bad people i believe in bad choices you know and, and folks can change over time and uh you know drastically change their outlook on the world and we don't want to cut off that opportunity for uh you know folks who have a transformation in prison to be able to successfully re-enter and and uh, value them as the individuals and the full potential they can reach absolutely when we look at our our vision we exist to break barriers and we look at at what we're looking for in reforms how how was our position how was our belief breaking down barriers from people reaching their full potential. I'll just kind of outline some of the, the things we try to talk about because there's on the there's community supervision, which I kind of touched on, but there's also kind of uh, employment and criminal record related things. Um, and then I think Rachel, you definitely can cover also tons of our um, work in communities as well, too, because you've got a great perspective on that that I lack uh, comparatively. So just to kind of break down some of the, the policy barriers we're trying to uh, remove, we uh, try to advocate for what are called uh, graduated sanctions or swift and certain sanctions when it comes to probation or parole violations. And that means that when someone commits one of these technical violations we were talking about, where it's that they haven't committed a new crime, but, you know, failed to meet some obligation that they're imposed, that they're still held accountable but it can be through a, uh, in the judgment of the parole or probation officer, some sort of intermediate sanction that still um, provides that incentive to, you know, follow your programming and try and get on the straight and narrow, but doesn't needlessly send people back to uh, prison. 
And so it could be something like maybe you have, you know, a extra curfew or you have to go to more meetings. But, you know, some if someone can uh, meet their conditions without having to have these really serious consequences, that's uh, we're trying to let uh, someone have the flexibility as a as a supervision officer to use their best judgment based on their assessment of that individual to uh, use the the least serious consequence possible to to get them to start following their conditions again. And then uh, in terms of things like housing or employment, you know, we we support efforts to expunge criminal records. Uh, if someone's if someone has had their case dismissed or been found not guilty um, or the charges have been dropped, you know, we we support someone having their criminal record automatically expunged because those uh, 44,000 collateral consequences following people around. A lot of those can still apply even if you just have a arrest record rather than a conviction record. So we want to automatically expunge people's records in that case um, since they haven't been legally found guilty in the eyes of the law. In the cases of people um, convicted of you know nonviolent offenses, we think if you've been able to you know remain law-abiding for a period of time and are trying to rebuild your life, then you should be able to apply and have your criminal record expunged. And, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, law enforcement can't retain a copy if they need to do an investigation later, or that if you're applying to some government job that requires that sort of background check, they shouldn't be able to access that. But it does mean that if you're talking to employers, you don't have to check that criminal history box, um, where so often just the mere existence of that criminal history can uh, turn people away from jobs, even though it might not have anything to do with the job in question. You know, another thing on that front is uh, ban the box legislation for the public sector. We think it's not the government's place to be asking its employees if they have a criminal record. We don't uh, try to pursue that in the private sector because we don't want to be uh, the government to be dictating for private employers what to do. But we definitely um, support efforts to encourage businesses voluntarily to do that. And Rachel can definitely touch on that a little bit more with the work that Coke Industries has been doing there. Um, and then also, we uh, have been working to reduce occupational licensing restrictions uh, that that unfairly bar people from jobs based on the mere existence of criminal history that has nothing to do with the job. So, you know, we try to, in those cases, make sure that there's still adequate accounting for you know, let's say if you're accused or if you're convicted of bank fraud, maybe you shouldn't be a bank teller, right? But that's directly related to the job at hand. And if we think that if occupational licensing boards want to deny someone's license, they need to show clear cause, uh, take into account how long ago an offense happened and evidence of rehabilitation, and that it needs to be directly related to that job. So lots of policy barriers there. That's a ton of information, but I want to hand it over to, to Rachel, because policy isn't the only thing we're focused on trying to uh, break these barriers in people's lives. Yeah, absolutely. But it's it's there's so many of them. So it's a big part of what we do. Um, I think a lot of what you touched on in terms of the policy barriers actually helps to highlight some of our efforts in business and in communities as well. Um, so I'll take the housing piece first, because I think that that's there are huge barriers for individuals with records actually finding housing, ranging from actual legal restrictions on living in Section 8 or other affordable housing 
uh, areas all the way to landlords having stigma and running criminal background checks on people and not wanting to lease to those with records. So across the board, it's, it's really, really difficult for people with records to find housing. And if their families live in affordable housing or Section 8, often they're not legally allowed to live with their families. So we've been supporting through Stand Together Foundation a number of Catalyst partners that are trying to find innovative solutions to addressing this housing gap, either through creating their own housing themselves or working directly with landlords to try to negotiate on behalf of of individuals um, trying to find housing. In addition to the housing question, our Stand Together Catalysts are also working closely with people still in prison on rehabilitation programs, on obtaining their higher education or GED and then also helping them develop a more comprehensive reentry plan and making sure all the different pieces are linked together. Because oftentimes what happens is that parole officers are really well-intentioned. Uh, and to Tyler's point before, the, there's so many little tiny requirements that they have that they don't realize are actually a barrier to people succeeding and not just a, a check that they have to, a box that they have to check. Um, so an example would be a requirement to meet with your parole officer instead of actually going to a drug treatment program or to actually show up to your job. So we support Catalyst partners and communities that actually help people navigate all of those really complex um, web of reentry. And then on the business side as well, I think that people with records are often the last people in line for, for new jobs. And in an economy like this, that just becomes even more paramount than it was before. So with the high numbers of unemployment, the unemployment rates for those with records are going to be much, much higher than the general population. And uh, through Coke Industries and a couple other partners like the Society for Human Resource Management, we've been working to sort of try to, on the one hand, shatter the stigma in business that comes with hiring those with records. So really having some big name businesses come out in support of second chance hiring. But then at the end of the day, CEOs are not really making hiring decisions to get these people back to work. So working with HR departments and supervisors to make sure that they're not unnecessarily screening out individuals with records that are really just an untapped population that could be very skilled and, and dedicated to, to doing the job. So that's some of the work that we're doing in business and communities. What I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot about about what happens when people leave prison and, and the barriers that they face regarding their, their, their criminal record and how that can keep them from getting housing and, and jobs. I'm curious if we could talk a little bit more about prison itself. And specifically, let's start with the idea of, of state-run prisons versus private prisons. Do we have any sort of, of philosophy towards that? Sure. So, I mean, I would say... What we, what we think is most important in looking at prisons is what the incentives are for those who operate them, whether they're public or private. You hear a lot of folks um, on the left talk about private prisons a lot. And while it's true, there can be issues there if the incentives are poor. It's important to have, I think, the proper perspective on this issue, which is that private prisons account for about 8.5% of all of our inmates in the country, which is a you know pretty tiny fraction. And clearly the sort of institutional issues across the system, you know, exist whether they're public or private. You know, we hear a lot about, oh, private prisons private prisons may lobby for tougher on crime legislation. And to the extent that may be true, um, can be unclear, but depending on those incentives, right? We also know that public prison guard unions also lobby for 
foreign crime legislation. And given the you know percentages of where the inmates are, that's probably a much bigger public policy issue. Um, so when it comes to that distinction, it's just important that in design incentives for prisons that uh, low recidivism is rewarded to encourage you know good programming opportunities. Uh, you know that, that we support ample access to to make sure that that the uh, people in prison who want to take that chance to learn some new skills or you know maybe have some you know therapy classes or whatever to address whatever their needs might be have that opportunity yeah i think this is also a really great time to just bring up the culture and incentives in prisons just broadly speaking i think tyler made a great point that prisons right now are are really just judged based on things like the number of violent incidents that occur there which makes you know, the relationship between uh, corrections officers and the people within prisons sort of really punitive and, and rightly so, given that incentive structure. But that also doesn't work for corrections officers. They have huge rates of PTSD, huge rates of suicide. The turnover is huge in the industry. Um, it's, it's not environment. It's not a good environment for them either. So thinking through what are the incentive structures that might actually both reduce recidivism and increase restoration for those behind bars, but also be a better working environment for the people that have to be employed there. I know that there's a state prison not far from where I live. And by not far, of course, it's all relative. Not far for us rural folks is it's a couple hours away. Uh, so so that's that's relatively close for us. Nobody that I know wants to work there. It's just a terrible place to work. And you, you it leads to, right, what you just said, this working culture that, that is, it lives there. When I think of, of private prisons versus state-run prisons, and I hear people complain about private prisons, I, I understand. Uh, I've seen, uh, when I was working with adjudicated youth, the, the difference between a private prison and a prison, uh, you know, a, a residential treatment environment. Two completely different mental models. But my response to those who want to abolish private prisons has always been, why don't we just get rid of the market for, for them? You know, um, maybe and the reason I bring that up is because it, it has fascinated me as we've done these podcasts to see how much of the problems that we face in each one of these five areas leads back ultimately to the problem of overcriminalization. I guess I don't Absolutely. have a question there, just a statement. <laughs> well, you know what you what you mentioned about the the contrast between a prison environment versus like a community based treatment option, right? Like I think that contrast is going to be so painfully clear no matter whether it's public or private. And I think that speaks to that deeper issue that you're talking about of, you know, what are we turning to as a solution to certain social problems is, you know, something carceral like jail or prison, our first resort, or is it our last resort if there are, you know, more um, humane options that actually get to the, the underlying problems at hand, um, if that's, you know, something that can be pursued first. When we think about prisons through a, a lens of equal rights, the first of the four mutually reinforcing principles, how should we think about prison and reentry in regards to equal rights? There's a there's a ton there to unpack. I did some thinking about this beforehand, and the one thing that we haven't yet talked about is really what the jail system looked like. I know that's not strictly sort of the prison reentry system, but that is it's a system that is rife. It's just such a two-tiered system where people are really held there based on their ability to pay rather than the risks that they pose to society. 
which needlessly incarcerates people in jail with no public safety risk and, and really just targets people that are living in poverty and criminalizes poverty. Um, so that's one area that I think is, is very clear where there's unequal rights. And studies have shown that if you don't get out on, you're much more likely to, to be charged and convicted and have a much longer sentence as a result. So it's not just a matter of being held pre-trial. There are actual real impacts on trial itself. The other piece I would add, too, is just um, some of the requirements that, that Tyler touched on before coming out of prisons. Like there's, there's states that have requirements that you have to be employed within 30 days coming out of incarceration. I can't imagine a system that says that a person that gets laid off has to find a job within 30 days or else they're going to go to prison. Like in no other population of people can you imagine such a tough sanction for a lack of ability to find employment. I mean, you can only imagine what it's like right now with a lot of people being released from prisons due to COVID, and yet we're releasing them into such a bad labor market. You, it's it's clear that there's going to be a lot of failure rates right now. Well, I mean, Ant Man found Ant- a job at Baskin Robbins. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but well, hey, but even, Bask- even, well, Baskin Robbins found out, though, didn't they? Baskin Robbins found out. Now he's out of a job. <laughs> I was just gonna just gonna add to it. You know, even even people uh, incarcerated, there there are a lot of these equal rights concerns and i think you know the the monetary stuff uh that rachel highlights you know it 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 transfers into the the state prison context too because uh so many of the things like phone calls uh emails sanitary supplies you know you have to often pay for through commissary so you hope that your family can send you money to purchase things like toothbrushes soap Things like tampons, even in a lot of uh, female prisons, where you know if someone's got limited access to to funds available, they might have to choose between you know getting that from the commissary or calling their kids. And what a horrible um, false choice to have to to give a mother, right? Luckily, some of the you know work we've done on on prisoner dignity bills has has pushed back against that. But uh, you know, a lot of this sort of just casual disregard for. Um, human dignity is just pervasive throughout the system just because of some of the default assumptions we have about what prison has to be like. Yeah, and the last thing I'll add that just comes to mind now is is the 13th Amendment, which allows uh, people that are incarcerated to work far below minimum wage so that when they actually are released, they have no savings to speak of. Um, and that's, I think, one way that we could actually set people up for, for more effective reentry is that if they are employed behind bars, not be paying them a dime an hour for whatever they are being paid, but actually paying them something that they can save and, and really start a new life once they're released. Is it a violation of, of rights or does it violate the idea of equal rights to have someone to continue to be punished after they've served their prison term? Absolutely. <laughs> now, I, mean, I, I would say yes. <laughs> the reason I ask that is because this often comes up when people talk about sex offender registries. Let's talk about no, that I, for I a second. Absolutely. So I, I should I should uh, qualify my answer, of course, that if there are aspects of uh, a crime that you committed that have ongoing public safety implications, um, you know, such as a sex offense or maybe, you know, it involved like a, a child or something like that. You know, I think there is absolutely a case for. Uh, you know, keeping track of, of people like that on a registry and, and having people, you know, in the area with children be aware. That said, there are issues with the sex offender registry as is, 
you know, you can, if you're coming home from a bar drunk and you get busted, you know, urinating in an alley, that could potentially be an indecent exposure charge that lands you on this humiliating list for the rest of your life. So there are pre-existing issues with that to begin with, but I think you can balance some of those basic safety concerns. You know, again, someone on that list probably shouldn't be teaching uh, in a school as well. You know, these are reasonable restrictions to place. That doesn't mean that this scarlet letter across all sorts of other employment restrictions uh, should necessarily follow someone for the rest of their life. Um, If they've served their time and basic safety accommodations can be met, we still want these people to be able to uh, reach, you know, the full potential that they can uh, still meet and demonstrate. Yeah, I think it all comes back to exactly what you just said, the the level of risk that people pose to the community. I think if you're a violent sex offender, I, I absolutely think there's a case to be made that there should be a registry and, and those people should be monitored. However, when it comes to things like um, losing your right to vote, that, that in no way sort of affects the safety of the community. And you have to question why there are certain restrictions in place and what good it's actually doing for the community. A point to what Tyler made. I once worked with an adolescent sex offender. I, I worked at a, at a facility for adolescent sex offenders. Sat down with one of them one night to walk through what they'd done and why they were there. Heard some really horrific stories from some of these kids. I sat down with this kid and I said, so tell me why you're here. And he said, I, I mooned someone on the school bus. And I said, okay, just try and be serious. Tell me why you're here. He said, no, that's why I'm here. I mooned someone on, on the school bus and I was charged with indecent exposure and sent to the sex offender program. I could not believe what I was hearing. Went and checked. Absolutely right. That's why he was there for mooning someone on the school bus. And I can't help but think how many people have done that. And this kid's life, you know, this is, this is impacting him for the rest of his life. And uh, unnecessarily, again, goes back to overcriminalization. I will probably edit that whole story out of the podcast. Um, but I, I'm hearing what you're well, saying. Well, I had a similar story if you wanted it. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to forget the names completely, but I remember Reason a few years back ran a story where uh, it was two, I think, 17-year-olds engaging in consensual sex. One of the parents found out and, and charged the boyfriend, and he was both charged as an adult and then uh, said he had child pornography on his phone. So he both was the subject of child pornography and being charged as an adult. So the level of, like, double think that is required to, to make those charges is just insanity to me. You know, the, the, the child pornography charge is, is the significant other since they're under under 18, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were so the same Like they're age. in a relationship and... Yeah, exactly. So wow. much. So they of, were both of, the victims and the perpetrators. Um, unreal. So much uh, legal contortionism I've seen over the period of, of time it's taken to record these that leads to a lot of the problems we see. Mutual benefit, however, when I think of, of prisons and reentry, there are some who would argue that knowing about a person's criminal history is important and that it's a benefit to those around them. But we're talking about issues that were, or, or positions that would limit access to that criminal history. How is that mutually beneficial? I, mean, I think it comes down to the fundamental question about what kind of opportunities for the neighbors 
we're all going to have no matter what do you want uh, in their lives. We all know what the alternative looks like, which isn't great for public safety, isn't great for taxpayers, and isn't great for you know these individuals' just personal fulfillment and ability to be the best versions of themselves. And if you've done something 10 years ago and are a completely different person and you've already served your time, there's no reason that should that should uh, continue to impose consequences for the rest of, of your life. You know, and I think in terms of a, a mutual benefit perspective, I think about a lot of our, our catalyst partners and the skills that they're able to uh, teach people in prison, you know, which not only help them not recidivate, but also help them really provide valuable services for uh, our economy today. Yeah, and just look at some of the leaders of our catalyst organizations that themselves were in prison and, and came out and started organizations helping others. I think that the the potential of people coming out of prison is huge, and and it's sort of a waste if we all just blanket assume that anyone with a criminal record is is sort of a second class citizen. Would you mind explaining real quick what catalyst programs are? That's probably my area of expertise. Uh, yeah, so Stand Together Foundation has a a program that we run called the Catalyst Program, where we take nonprofit social entrepreneurs across a wide range of issues of which criminal justice is one. And uh, they go through a six month training program, for lack of a better term, on that really teaches market based management, but geared towards a nonprofit organization. Uh, So it's we run them every three months, Uh, it's cohorts of about 15 organizations, and they get to learn from us learn from one another and do great work. Excellent. How many how many people how many organizations do you think have gone through so far? We're up to about 170 give or take and I think when the next cohort starts it'll be 180 or 190. I want to go back to what Tyler said a little bit ago because I think that's that's important. And when we look at we look at this, I I like that you brought up the opportunity. Opportunity cost is a big part of the understanding of the mutual benefit aspect, I think, because we can see the right now that that having this barrier might benefit someone right now. But when these barriers are put in place, that that destroys the potential for long-term value creation, long-term opportunities that could be created if these barriers weren't in place. And I think that's that's really important to to, to consider. That it's 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 the unseen, really. It goes back to Bastia. There's that which is seen, that which is unseen. And when you put these barriers in place, the the cost of that barrier is what's unseen. That the potential benefit, the potential growth, and the potential society that we could have if this person were allowed to contribute up to their full potential. I think that's the fundamental failure of most tough on crime legislation doing is exactly that the the unseen costs you know i've i've when it comes to overcriminalization i've i've heard uh one legal scholar say you know don't make anything a crime that you're not willing to see people um be killed to keep illegal um just knowing like the potential for police interactions and you know obviously if something's important enough for public safety that's a trade off we should be ready to make. But you know, that's an unseen cost. The criminal records people get are unseen costs. Um, you know, this sort of zero sum false choice between knowledge about someone's criminal history and their rehabilitation and fulfillment for the rest of their lives, another false choice with those those unseen costs, you know, and we can 
I think we've kind of tried to outline how there are ample opportunities to make reasonable exceptions for clear public safety issues that we want to keep track of without incurring those massive opportunity costs for everyone else who's got the potential to turn their lives around. Yeah, I'd also add here that I think that there's a ton of unseen costs or unintended consequences for well-intentioned policy in this area as well. So Tyler brought up ban-the-box policy before. Um, I think it's great when employers don't ask people for their criminal history when uh, they're going through job interviews. But if you mandate that through legislation, HR managers are going to pick what they think is a proxy for a criminal record. And unfortunately, in our country, that is race. So you find that if there are ban-the-box rules in place, fewer African-Americans actually get called back for job interviews. So there's well-intentioned policy out there that also has really bad effects. And we should think really critically about how to set up everyone for success. When equal rights and mutual benefit are respected, this fosters openness by allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people that generate knowledge, innovation, and opportunity fueling progress throughout society. When we talk about prison and re-entry, how does openness apply to our position? I think if I could just start off from a, a, the policy side, you know, one issue with throughout our justice system and which affects uh, the experience in and out of prison in particular is just uh, the lack of uniform, centralized and publicly accessible data collection. Um, you know, we want to ensure and part of the reason part of the reason we support what we call a, a smart on crime rather than a tough on crime policy is because we think it makes the best use of taxpayer dollars in to protect public safety. You know, we want to give people who are incarcerated the best shot possible to be able to turn their lives around and be productive, but without clear tracking of people's outcomes from various programs um, and just kind of across you know, all the states is sort of uniform data collection about the justice system. We can't necessarily know what the best tool is to help people in individual circumstances will be. So I think that culture of transparency is really important to making sure we can best set people up for success after they've been properly held accountable for past criminal actions. Yeah, and even past data, I mentioned it before, but all the systems just don't really talk to one another. Dwayne, I think at the beginning, you kind of asked what the difference is between prison and reentry, and I'll add the jail system to that. There's all these disparate systems that, aside from having all these data problems, just don't communicate with one another. And if you're an individual that is reentering society, you have to communicate with your parole officer, maybe be going through either mental health or substance use disorder treatment. Uh, you might be going through a number of different nonprofit programs like our Catalyst partners have, uh, but none of those people really talk to one another and communicate and understand how to serve this individual in an appropriate way. So I think this comes back to a question of openness and really figuring out how people can create better systems that make it more likely that people reentering are going to be successful. And finally, self-actualization. When we think about our, our prison and reform uh, vision, how does self-actualization play a part in that? You know, I would actually, I think the, the best answer to this question would come from hearing about some of the, the skills that are programs like Hudson Link or Cafe Momentum or anything else you want to talk about, Rachel, equip people with, because I think those are so powerful to hear. Yeah, yeah, we have a number of Catalyst partners, so it's, it's tough to actually decide which one to choose. Mm -hmm. um, one that comes to mind that I think is, is really interesting 
on its face and, and also is a compelling story is a group called The Last Mile operating, operating out of San Quentin. And they equip people that are currently incarcerated with uh, skills in coding, uh, which is obviously a very high demand industry. So it, rather than a lot of in-prison programs that sort of teach um, construction or some of the harder skills, it's, it's obviously much more of the 21st century skill that is going to be in high demand. And they won't necessarily be people that are last in line for those jobs uh, when they come out of prison. And not only that, but while they're in prison, they actually are also doing the work and being paid, I, I want to say, one of the highest wages paid to people that are currently incarcerated in the country. Um, so they're able to actually leave prison with a good amount saved up, and it really sets them up for success. Um, so I think that's a great program. Uh, Tyler, you mentioned Hudson Link, which is another program operating in New York. Uh, the, the, so the number of different colleges in New York and, and helps people currently incarcerated start to work towards their um, higher education degrees while they're currently incarcerated. And if they leave prison while they haven't completed, they can continue actually going to that university and, and obtain their degree. So uh, all the studies suggest that the most the, the more education you have, the more likely you are to be successful upon reentry. Uh, so really equipping people with the most education they can to be successful is is key. I just think about, you know, the sense of, of accomplishment and fulfillment that must come from, you know, achieving some educational goal, like getting a degree or, you know, some sort of like certification in a, in a really valuable skill, like coding and, and just sort of the, the sense of, of uh, personal dignity and improving oneself that that must provide. And, you know, when, when you're in prison, you, you, you know, so many people are, are so, um, you know, unfortunately, have so many of their their, their social ties and, and sense of self broken. You know, it's might be you might lose a relationship that you might have had before, become estranged from family members, for instance. You know, miss things like weddings, graduations, funerals, and you know, to be able to have access to a prison system that values the people incarcerated enough to give them these opportunities to better themselves and be able to feel like there's a platform that they can build on from the work they're doing to improve their lives, I think is just so fundamental. And it's absolutely the, the mindset shift we need about uh, the right way to incarcerate people, but also set them up for success. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback off of that, keeping in mind that it, I think it's something like one in 28 kids in the U.S. today has a parent behind bars. It's not just about the people coming out of prison to set them up for success. It's about the next generation as well. And uh, studies show that if you have a parent incarcerated, you're much more likely to end up incarcerated yourself. So I think that uh, an individual being able to successfully reenter self-actualize is, is only going to be beneficial for the next generation as well. Is there anything about prison or reentry that you wanted to talk about that we haven't yet? Any points you wanted to make that we can close out with? You know, the only thing I'll add is that we're obviously in a, a very strange and and a completely alien, at least in modern history, situation with COVID-19 right now. And I think it's really shown a lot of new possibilities for what prisons can do to try and accommodate remote participation in rehabilitation programs, things like giving prisoners, uh, sorry, excuse me, incarcerated individuals, 
um, you know, free phone calls or video conferences with their their families because they recognize that right now when in-person visitation is suspended, it's so uh, hard to maintain those those crucial family ties. And I just hope that as we're starting to reopen and coming out of this and figuring out how we can you know live in this new reality, that as things return to normal, we can uh, keep some of these uh, positive changes that have been in place that provide more possibility for human connection and rehabilitation and that we can just continue to be imaginative and open-minded about how to give people the best opportunities for success when they re-enter their communities. Um, yeah, I would only add to that that I think we're really on the precipice of sort of this old guard, tough on crime mentality and really seeing a situation where there's so many more people that are their advocates of reform, but even within the prison systems themselves, you see um, wardens and, and directors of corrections that are that are really gunning for reform. And I, I think that sort of as we move towards more restorative environments, that we're on the verge of something really great happening in corrections. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.